David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Ian Andrews. This is Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader, in which we are discussing Amor Toll's A Gentleman in Moscow. And we are going to read pages... Well, we're not going to read. We're going to discuss the reading <laughs> we just did, roughly pages 54 through 105. So to the end of book one of A Gentleman in Moscow. I got an email that I want to use as an entryway into this week's conversation. But first, how the heck are you? Ian, how are you? Doing great. It's bright and early here in Washington State. Yeah, it is. It's uh, life, uh, it's coffee. Like I was out of half you. and half this morning. Is that why you and had to so, be five minutes late? No, it's I I had uh heavy whipping cream. Oh well that's better. that's better. I know. I, f- I feel really oppressed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be drinking coffee with heavy whipping cream. That's how my morning's going. <laughs> and Heidi, That's how's great. yours? My morning is going great. You can hear from my voice that I have been a little bit sick. Probably you can hear it. Yeah. But I'm, I am on the mend. Yeah. I'm, our house had a solid 10 days of Ugh. feeling cruddy. Yeah. Bethany got, the, it lasted the longest for her. The kids just got the whole like, runny nose and cough thing, but they're still like running around outside like wild people and jumping on your head and all those things that kids do e- even with their coughs. And then Bethany and I are like curled up in a ball because we're like, <laughs> we can barely move. Because we're like <laughs> achy and, you know, like, you know, we I didn't get the cough or the runny nose, but it was like, I could barely move my arms, you know, <laughs> for, like, yep. for, for like three and a half days. Or oh, then I'd feel better for like two hours, right? And then, or or like the afternoon, and then the evening would come, and it would be like I ran a marathon that afternoon, or I played a football game, or something. I really so. like how poetically you just said, "And then the evening would come." <laughs> well, what's the less poetic way of I saying? I don't know. Like I, nighttime happens. <laughs> <laughs> then later, when it got dark, I don't know. But oh. like when you read a lot of think? poetry, you just kind of like work these like poetic <laughs> sounding. Your idiom know, like is poetry. Jane yeah. Kenyon-esque kind of. Do you think you can actually run a cold away? Is that a thing? Like, is that how the children do this? Do they just run in the cold leaves? I, I, mean, I actually think that's probably, there's probably something to that. Maybe so. Scott thinks that bourbon will do it, but that is not right. Yes, it is. <laughs> Moving on. I mean, I feel like there's a little bit of science, some experiments that need to happen before one can conclude yeah. definitively. I feel like Scott's in a lifelong that, that, science that, experiment. Yeah, I was just going like, to say, I've been working on this experiment for years. It's a longitudinal study. Well, here's the thing with a science experiment. You have to have a lot of data to be able to determine something one way or the other, right? Because one or two times, it could be a, a one-off. So right. you have to have enough data to repeatable, you know. Yeah, I've been working on this experiment since I was a small child. My grandmother, if we were staying with her and the preacher's wife, yep, she would say, "Here, have a swig of this." <laughs> I love her. Nice. Yeah, nice. it's pretty awesome. Uh, well, speaking of swigs, uh, th- that somehow ties into this book, Ian. Just a quick update on your sense of this book. We, we, Heidi and I have both read it. You'd never read it before. And you said you right. were going to try not to read ahead. So, yes, 53 to the end of part, to the end of book one. Uh-huh. Let's take stock of your, your, uh, your feelings about this book and, and your, um, your response to it. And then I want to turn to this email I got sent in. Okay. Yeah. So I'm still absolutely loving it. There were, mo- there was a, a larger number of vignettes in this section. Um, it wasn't a lot longer, but it felt like it moved more quickly. And there were 
several different conversations with Nina that really stuck with me. And it's just turning out to be a little bit more layered even than I thought it was going to be. It's not just, as we were discussing last time, an examination of a failing culture and a man that's that's been taken out of his time pretty aggressively. But it's also a study of coming of age, of a man rediscovering his childhood in some ways, which I think is really, really beautiful. And then that whole meditation on his extra room that he discovers behind the wall and how the secrecy of it and its different use from the other, from his original bedroom, uh, makes it sort of a paradise that's unbounded by space. And um, I don't know, I just, there was, there's a lot to chew on. And it makes me want to go kind of scene by scene and unpack what's happening. One of the questions I had though, is when his best friend visits him, and I'm sure we'll get to this at some point, there was a conversation between the two of them where his buddy is sort of, I guess, conversation is the wrong word. He's monologuing, he's pacing and monologuing. He talks about the different ages and he describes in a way that seems out of step with what's going on politically, the way that progress has brought, has given man different tools to oppress one another as the world moves along and grows. Mm -hmm. And um, that seems backwards to me, given that, that the whole ideal present here politically is progress is, is the friend to the proletariat. Um, So anyway, I want to talk about that at some point, but there's a jumble of thoughts for you. Heidi. Which of these uh, particular things would you like to respond to first? (laughs) (laughs) I think what Ian just said is really apt to the book. What you just said, Ian, about the jumble of thoughts. Mm -hmm. He seems to just throw out. It's like he's fly fishing, right? He's just like throwing out these Mm -hmm. lines um, through these vignettes that you can just kind of let them wash over you and enjoy it, or you can take, or, or you can, or you can bite the hook, right. And, and, and get carried along with, with the deeper contemplation that he's raising about whether it's philosophical or spiritual or political or literary. It's such a big, there, there, there's so many lines that he throws out through these vignettes mm-hmm. and yeah, you can just like, let it, let it be fun and lighthearted, or you could take it to a much deeper level. Uh, and I, I think that's what Amor Tolls is great at in all of his books. Um, and, mm-hmm. and particularly I think in this one, it's really, really wonderful. Yeah, I like that. And it, it seems to me that the, especially with the the punch of the last paragraph of our section that ends book one, it seems like that deeper level is, is dark um, in a way that I, I mean, maybe I could have seen it coming given that the, the man's in prison, right? Um, but it it seems as though his character, his composure is being threatened ever increasingly. And uh, what's under the surface I mean, like him watching this meeting, the assembly, and re- being really pleased with himself because he's come up with a bunch of poetic answers to the to the question that they have in that meeting uh, of what line to use in their manifesto so um, was hilarious and just absolutely wonderful and conceals this undercurrent of malaise that is only getting stronger. And um, so, yeah, I like what you said. You could be swept along by the beautiful vignettes and the language and, and how sunny this man's personality is. But, um, but the things going on under the surface are, are apt to get a little scary, I think. So what questions, now that we're through book one, or ideas, I suppose, is the book 
asking. You're saying that there's, you know, there's this surface stuff that's going on, this the sort of surface delight. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then there's what's happening underneath. And, and Ian, what are some questions or ideas that you see the book asking us to contemplate now that we're at the end of book one? You know, we've we've hit a real turning point in the book. You know, like we've, we're 100 pages in. He's telling us this is a breaking point. We know the book is about to shift in some way, even if we don't know how yet. But now that we've hit this point, you know, what are some of those things that are under the surface that you think he's asking us to to think about? Yeah, I'm, aside from the the things we talked about last time with, like we said, the failing culture, mm-hmm. um, I also think there's a huge identity question for our, for our main character. And those of you that have listened to me before will be like, oh, you do, Andrews? Really? That's the only mm-hmm. thing you ever talk about. But, uh, but I, I think it's present. Um, and for the Count, it's not just a question of his actions and how his actions can participate in defining his character in this new this new stage of life that he's been thrust into. It's also a question of how, to what extent his relationships and his past have actually made him who he is and, and being removed from those circumstances. Can he continue to be that person Mm -hmm. absent his family, absent his estate, absent his friends who in fact is he now. And so I, I, that's the biggest question that I, that I see spidering along. Heidi, what about you? What, like, what are some other things that you think are prominent? Right. Um, I think, Ian, that you're exactly right. Like, whenever I see multiple threads being thrown out in order to keep the threads from becoming a jumble, like you said, I organize it in my mind. And you just said everyone will recognize what you say. People will likely recognize what I'm about to say, too. Into <laughs> this... In my head, I have this, what I call the three circle model. I teach this in my classes and it's really, really helpful for me when I, if you think of, you think of a book as addressing issues and in, in kind of concentric circles, like a, like an archery target. Um, and there's a circle in the middle and then one, a concentric circle right outside of it. And then a larger circle encapsulating all of it. I find this really helpful because it's the same book. It's one unit, but it's kind of organized in terms of this, these concentric circles, the larger circle encapsulating the others. And in the center, I think of usually our main character, character development, the circle of the self, whatever the characters are individually going through within a novel. And and that's very Mm -hmm. clearly a contemplation of a gentleman in Moscow. And then zooming out from that in that second circle, I call it the circle of society. And that's however the the book is contemplating the society in which our characters are are becoming something or changing into something. And in this case, Moscow, Mm -hmm. it's literally in the title, right? A gentleman first circle in Moscow, second circle. Um, and so yep. we're talking about Russia. Uh, we're talking about Russian aristocracy uh, that's in a changing time in a world that's changing and going from tradition uh, to kind of this like breaking of tradition and trying to find itself in a new way politically. Um, And then uh, even outside of that, zooming out of that, there's this larger contemplation that I call the the universal or cosmological circle. And that's where you get into these like spiritual questions. What does that mean Mm. for this character spiritually? What does that mean of transcendent morality? Um, And what kinds of questions are being uh, on, on that more, uh, 
cosmological level. That's the hardest one for the students to get to. They like the inner circles. But as an adult, I really do like that kind of more abstract um, cosmological contemplation as well. And so I think as he's throwing out these threads so that they don't become a jumble, it it is a complex book. And, and so to be able to put mm-hmm. them in there, like what you just said, the, our character is changing in his identity. And one of the reasons that his identity is changing is because Russia is changing. And, and mm-hmm. as an aristocrat, he's been He's been trained uh, to believe himself the keeper of this national tradition. That is what aristocrats are supposed to do. That is the job of a gentleman. And so he, his role, his identity on a personal level is changing because everything else is changing. And, and he, that scene when he is observing, um, like the one you brought up, it's so funny that mm-hmm. it's a, such a funny scene, but it's more than yeah. funny too. Um, there's, and, and, and he, because he's a gentleman and because he's a thoughtful person, um, he is, he's contemplating that like my life is different, but also there seems to be some continuity between, uh, these people who claim to be breaking tradition and yet they're doing the same thing to greet this old member of um, of the revolution the way that yeah. my comrades greeted the old the old woman right so so there's this shared humanity that he's trying to connect to so hard in order to find his place but also they're quibbling over some word in paragraph seven right and it seems so <laughs> empty and meaningless but at the same time isn't that isn't that exactly what the gentleman is doing with the summoner? Right. Mm. Yeah. And so like this continuity and yet this profound shift is deep. That's deep. That's all three circles. Right. And that's what a great novel does. Well said, well said that that just brings up so many things. Like the first one is the personification of pomp. Mm-hmm. And that in that scene was totally spectacular. Um, and, and maybe we talk about that m- more later, but, wonder if he actually is or ever was a self-conscious preserver of culture or if he is now dealing with the fact that he wasn't ever a self-conscious preserver of culture he was merely swept along by it i'm thinking of the conversation that he has with his friend and the memories that we are swept into of spending time with the grand duke um and is it his is it his aunt or his grandmother it's not his parents grandmother yeah, grandmother. I think it's his grandmother. Yeah, um, and and with his sister, they each ask the same question in a different tone of voice. What is to become of you? And the picture that we're given of his character there is a man who is transgressive in his in his place in society. He doesn't share all of these um, all of these opinions, and we actually know that the reason he's he's in this hotel instead of being sent up against the wall is because he's written a transgressive piece of poetry that the revolutionaries use as one of their rallying calls, right? And so um, that's a profound character. We get the sense that he's looked at himself as um, someone who's, yeah, he's an aristocrat in terms of bearing and in terms of breeding, but he also has some, some ideas that don't really line up with the old fuddy-duddies of his era. And now to be to be jerked so quickly from, from a, a young man who's on the cutting edge of new ideas into being a symbol of all of those ideas that he maybe didn't agree with in the first place, 
that's I mean, like you said, that's deep. That's novel writing. Um, so yeah, I wonder if his, if his sense of self is, is, um, is as pat as I was an aristocrat in the aristocratic ages over. I think there's another layer underneath that. Yeah, I agree completely. And it is one of those, I mean, it's such a trite statement, but it's, it's really not that you don't know what you have till you lose it. Yeah. And that I think is why it's cultures. We really don't. That's why they, you know, the old, the old saying, I don't even remember who said it. You'll both have to remind me the owl of Minerva flies at dusk, right? Mm -hmm. There's no self-consciousness of the value of tradition until tradition is being taken. Mm -hmm. It's all, it generally institutions and traditions are attacked until they're, until they are lost. Right. And, and, and we are, you know, in some ways, we, the three of us and, and, and our ilk are the people who are like, pay attention to the owl of Minerva. Like it is flying <laughs> like, and like that it is the dusk. We are at the twilight. Is there anything that we should be noticing here and paying attention to? Yes, of course. And, and so the book says it should, we should pay attention to wine and food and, uh, and, and the, the beauty and the grandeur of, of a great hotel, right? But we should also be paying attention to these deeper things that are represented by the, and, and held by the institutions. And, and, and that, that's something that the count is having to reckon with. And we, since the count is the vessel, right? We, as the reader are, are, he's asking, Tolls is asking us mm-hmm. to reckon with that in our own country, our own civilization, our own national identity. That's really good. I, I think it's not an accident that he keeps referencing the czar, like the downfall of the czar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think people who are, for lack of a better term, monarchists, people who like value a monarchy, like one of the reasons they value it is because of the way the monarch itself is designed to help preserve some degree of culture and to help in the creation of culture, right? Like, you know, either a monarch or you have to have like some Florentine, like, you know, boss man <laughs> to keep to keep beautiful and important culture flourishing. And so, he, you know, I think the downfall of the czar is a, is this key inflection point in history that like the last, like the last 125 years or so have spun out of. And, uh, you know, there's a real... It's interesting to read this book the same week as Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Uh-huh. Because 5.1 billion people watched that funeral. It's the most watched television program in the history of the world. Five point, so I think I heard, what is that, like half, like a third of the population of the world? How many people live in the world right now? I'd have to look it up. But some huge percentage of people in the world and, and an enormous percentage of people in the world who have televisions or access to a streaming service or something like that watched this funeral ironically i was not one of them and you there is this interest in the traditions in the customs in the symbols of the funeral of the way that this thing was presented and the way it happened and i think this is a book also about or that's at least interested in the way those symbols are meaningful in terms of how we experience our lives and one of the things that's happening with Rostov is that he's like a lot of the symbols have been stripped away. 
So then what is he? Going back to that question that you guys have both asked. Hmm. So this this conversation here, I was kind of letting you guys go because it was so interesting. Like I could listen to you guys talk about that for a long time. But there's a, there's a email here from Alina that I wanted to introduce to you guys and see what you think. She says, thanks for the excellent discussion in the last podcast. She says, I wonder if I could comment here as my reading of it so far was quite different. It's my first time reading the book and the way I read it was not as positive as yours. I don't see Rostov as an icon of a Russian cultured man. He is someone who hardly knows what it means to be Russian, at least so far. He quotes Shakespeare and speaks French, makes continual references to European writers and artists. At the time, his countrymen are getting shot or sent to Siberia. He gets a room in a hotel where he eats the best food. He doesn't really have any of the usual Russian passionate attachment to religion or country. Therefore, he does not suffer like the Russians of that era suffered. I especially loved the point in the podcast about Rostov being a picture of a modern man. That's what he appeared to be, uh, to me to be. A man who loves his personal peace and affluence as long as he can keep those he does not mind being locked away. It seems to me that this tepidness buys him a small room in, his, in an existence in this gilded cage, but it's a good thing. In other words, I think he's not a threat to the state, therefore they let him live in relative comfort in his cage. This, however, is quite frightening. If, if he stood for something, if there was any passion in him apart from having this great food and wine, he would be dangerous and perhaps would have paid for it dearly like many of his countrymen. But as it is, he will just spend his life fruitlessly trying to read Montaigne, a book he is not really interested in, just a cultured book to read. Oh, uh, she's not. Comment. She's not wrong about this. I mean, the Russian. He's not Dostoevskyan by any means. Like, there's, I, Dostoevsky wrote about the common man, and he's he's a little bit a tight. Oh, I I think he's just. This is just not a Russian book. It doesn't capture the Russian soul. However, I will say that Russian aristocracy is famously ambivalent about being Russian. Uh, there was a, a, a movement for a century to become more European. And this uh -huh. is how St. Petersburg was built. The whole right. city was built by Peter the Great because even the czar himself, Peter, was ambivalent about being Russian, he wanted to establish himself as a European monarch. Um, in the time that Europe was was uh, was the were the rulers of the world, um, and and so he forced this city to be built in this beautiful spot because he thought it would be the most European city closest to Europe as he can get. There's this really interesting. I just read this really great book called The Sinner and the Saint. It's all about. Um, it's all about Dostoevsky and it has like a really interesting examination of the city of St. Petersburg and how it was forced into being by Peter the Great in order to become this European jewel um, of a city. And it was on a bad spot. It's marshy and boggy and there's mosquitoes everywhere. And, uh, and he forced it through um, and he, and it becomes this kind of like objective correlative to the attempt of the Russian aristocrats to become more European. They didn't speak mm. Russian. They spoke French, right? They didn't read Russian books. They read French novels. Uh, and, um, and they would, and they didn't take vacations in Russia. They went to the continent they went to Switzerland and France. And, um, and so there's, there is this movement within the aristocracy to kind of distance themselves from their own suffering people and become 
European um, and more Western. And, mm-hmm. and so the Count does indeed embody that, which is in itself very Russian. Um, however, I don't, I, I don't disagree with the point that she's making. There, there is kind of a missing deeply Russian piece of this novel. It just doesn't feel Russian. I'm using air quotes, um, the same way Tolstoy and Dostoevsky do. Um, and, and it's probably because Tolstoy and Dostoevsky are literal Russians and Amor Tolls <laughs> is an American. And yeah. so I, I, I think that you're not wrong, but there also is that piece that I just mentioned. But is mm. Hamlet really Danish? Right. No, he's English <laughs> because Shakespeare is. That's the whole, I mean, that, and and so we either kind of accept the novel on its own terms and kind of say, yeah, I mean, however much you talk about you, Tchaikovsky or whatever, this really isn't a Russian novel. Um, and, and that's, but that's okay because I'm an American. So I like reading novels by Americans. I also like reading them by Russians, but this isn't really Russian. Yeah. Go ahead, Ian. Mm. I like that. Yeah. I, I mean, from my own recent, very recent reading of, of War and Peace, it was a symbol throughout novel of, of un-Russian-ness whenever a character spoke in French. Um, that was, that was like a, one of the, the major signposts in the, in the works. So I think that's really true. Um, for me, this connects to the question though, again, of what is the, what is actually the conflict at the heart of the story? And like, I, I love what Heidi said earlier about the concentric circles. I think that's a really cool way of envisioning types of conflict and levels of, of questioning by the author. But there's this piece um, on page 55, right at the beginning, where Tolls says, but for the virtuous who have lost their way, the fates often provide a guide. On the island of Crete, Theseus had his Ariadne and her magical ball of thread to lead him safely from the lair of the Minotaur. Through those caverns where ghostly shadows dwell, Odysseus had his Tiresias, just as Dante had his Virgil. And in the Metropole Hotel, Count Alexander Ilyich Rostov had a nine-year-old girl by the name of Nina Kulikova. (laughs) This raises a couple of questions for me. One, if he's virtuous, what way has he lost? And two, if Nina is his guide, what is she leading him into? Obviously, the hotel is the lair, right? It's the prison. Well, um, she leads him into the underworld, Ian. She does. Yeah. I mean, it's very Dantean. Uh, but I, I just think, to Heidi's point, this might not be quite as much about Russia and her circumstances as it is about this character and, right. and his life. And we're given a clue as to what it is he's being led out of in the very next sentence. On the first Wednesday in July, as the Count sat in the lobby at a loss of what to do with himself. He happened to notice Nina zipping past with an unusually determined expression. Side note, the way that he writes a nine-year-old girl is perfect and hilarious. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I think that's I think that's the question of the novel. And and maybe this is a, maybe this is the the center circle, maybe this is a surface level reading, but I do think that's what we're what that's what we're given. What is he supposed to do with himself? And one gets the sense that that question is not new. It's heightened by his circumstances, but it's been present his entire life. What am I to do with myself? What will become of me? Mm-hmm. So that may be an answer to the question in the email as well uh, about whether he's Russian. And I think that the dark cast of that interpretation makes a lot of sense. That right. ties into me to that that deeper layer that we were talking about, uh, the ennui and the malaise. But um, but yeah, I'm not. I think the Russian thing is a useful setting that allows the real questions he wants to ask about 
about people uh, to be really pointed. Do you think the book, though, do you think Tolls, or at least our narrator, is critical of Rostov for his lack of commitment or, or interest in the cause? No, I don't like, think so. Is that so. a criticism? I don't think so. Um, criticism is the wrong way to put that. One of the things I wonder, and I haven't finished the novel, obviously, but one of the things I wonder is if Tolls is going gonna, is gonna to make a statement about how small a human being actually is. Um, and how far their efforts can really take them in affecting their society. And one of the things we notice in, in all revolutions, whether they're successful or disasters, is that, um, is that they're usually driven by people who have this, this outsized vision of their own potential impact on their world. And at the end of the day, looking back through the lens of history, we can tell that the world is, and this is a, this is a very Tolstoy idea, the world is being driven by a multiplicity of causes. And that that detail leads you either to complete despair at the random chance of it all, or to a belief in in a prime mover, in a god that's actually stitching those causes together to to affect his own aims. And uh, and so here we have a Count Rostov who, by breeding and education, has has been trained to consider himself as as worthy, as a virtuous man, um, as a defender maybe of of a way of life. And it comes down to the point when the way of life needs defending, and he's powerless. And I think that might be a statement, at least at this early stage of the novel. You're powerless. What are you going to do now with yourself, given your smallness in the face of all of these events and 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 your relative lack of ability to do anything about them? How will you spend your days? What will you think about? Um, how goes it with your soul in the face of your smallness? I heard a definition of a gentleman. I can't remember who said it. He said, a gentleman is somebody who can play the accordion, but doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) I like love that definition so much. So, so much that a gentleman is somebody who can understand and do very obscure things like play the accordion. Right. But also knows when and where to do those things. and. I I think that Rostov's identity as a gentleman, which is fundamental to him, as we can see in the title and in his being in the world, is it both expands his soul and restricts it, right? It, it gives him access to a way of life that is anchoring to him in his suffering and a, 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 a stoicism as well as a cheerfulness that makes him likable, that keeps him kind of light on his feet. And he is always the gentleman, right? He is, he is always poised and in control. Uh, and that serves him well. But, but the dark side of that, the cost of that is that he, he doesn't, he knows how to suffer on the outside, but not necessarily on the inside yet, right? Like meaning mm. that there's, uh, it, it reminds me of Flannery O'Connor in her book, Mystery and Manners. Like he has, he has the manners, but now he has to encounter the mystery. And, mm. and so much of this book is once you get past the manners and you're at the primal man, the natural man, the true human, what does it mean to be a gentleman? Mm-hmm. So, okay, I, I have a question related to that because 
related to the the sort of like sense of manners and all that. Because one of the things that that can drive people a little crazy about this book, or that goes along with the sort of relentlessly charming nature of this book, to borrow to you know to reference the the review that I mentioned last week, is the whole food and the wine and the the sort of relentless appreciation for things that are sort of I don't know bougie. And so what and then and then there's a second part of this question I'm going to ask after this, but I want to ask this first. What role do you think the food and wine and that sort of bougie aspect of it have other than to make it seem snooty or bougie or even maybe escapist for readers? Like is there a higher order of purpose that is in keeping with what we're talking about we're talking about you know wine from the rhone valley and you know uh you know everything from the the, uh, latvian stew to ice cream heidi what do you think about this i'll I'll ask you that first and then if you would like to try to pronounce uh (laughs) <laughs> Shots enough to pop, right? Yeah, yeah. What? Everyone should, should Google how to pronounce. Everyone should Google how do you pronounce that Chateau de Pop? Is that right? Chateau Neuf de Pop. Then you can um, you can Google that and laugh for a long time. Right. So I think that it, there is a sense in this novel of appreciating wine and food for themselves, right? Like that they are worthwhile. It is worthwhile to live a good life and to love and enjoy good things and know about them. However, I also think that they are representative of the core contemplation of the novel, which is, is there anything to the good life other than just the surface appreciation of it? And are they then, if they are the manners, do they have anything to speak into the mystery? And I think that Amor Tolls answers that with yes, but if you answer it with no, you're going to find the book just relentlessly charming. Um, but I think that the care with which Tolls puts into the research and the description of there's an amazing scene that we're about to read in our next one about bees um, and, and honey and, and how the land itself changes kind of creates this delicate difference between different kinds of honey. And, and it's so beautiful. I just love this. It's one of the things I remember most about the novel. Um, and I can't wait to talk about it next time. Um, but if you think about this novel as contemplating the mystery through somebody who has been raised by the manners and now has to confront the mystery of being human, that I think is a helpful guide as to why there's so many descriptions of, quote, the finer things. They are intended to be, I think, kind of representative of something deeper. Um, and I don't think you will appreciate them if you're determined not to see them as valuable. So mm. try to meet the novel on your, on its own terms. Even if you're never going to drink a Chateau de Chem because you don't care, right? Try to like enter into <laughs> it, into like, instead of rolling your eyes at it, 
try to kind of see what the count is seeing and wrestle with what he's wrestling with and reckon with the losses of his life, which even though it's just a fine wine is real to him because it, it, he's been, he's been trained and raised and formed by it. It's mm-hmm. the same thing that might happen to us if we had to live without our iPhones. Like, and someone might say, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Who cares? But it matters to us because that's how we live our lives. That's how we We, organize our lives. And if we lost that, we'd have to reckon with it the same way the count is reckoning with the wine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that the reason that they have weight is because all of these things facilitate relationships. There's never a meditation on any one of these details without a meditation on the friend that he drank it with or the family that he drank it around. Um, when his when his buddy shows up to pace back and forth in his room and monologue at him, he brings an excellent bottle of wine that they have some history with. Um, when the Count is sitting to dinner and watches a young couple that are sort of fumbling their way through their first date and recommends a bottle of wine to them, you get the sense that they will always remember the name of that bottle, which they didn't know before they walked into the room because it was the thing that they did on their first date together, right? And And so I think there's there's a usefulness to these things because they are a part of the human experience and that human experience is shared. And that might be one of the major conflicts of the story so far is with whom is he supposed to share it now? Um, we have Nina, she's getting ready to go off to school. So will he actually be alone? And will those comforts be enough for him if he is alone? I get the sense the answer is no. And that isn't to say that the comforts right. aren't important or that they don't have value. It's to say that they're, they're divorced from their true end which is to knit human souls together in fellowship. Right. And to make life, if you read to our earlier commenters point about the deep and appalling suffering of the Russian people at the time of the revolution um, and the, there, so we just read Loris by Vodolaj, Eugene Vodolajkin, uh, two of his other novels, Brisbane and Solovyov and Larianov. Uh, they are written about ordinary people during the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, people who, who didn't suffer like those who went to the gulag but who just lived kind of like ordinary day-to-day lives and the cost of that on their souls, right? The people who didn't go to the gulag and who weren't aristocrats, but were just in the middle, what happened to them? And what was that like for them? And as I was reading it, the cost is deep. The cost was Mm -hmm. very deep um, because they were divorced from the beauty that ennobles the soul. Like there was there was this stripping away of, of anything that encountered the transcendent. They couldn't, the churches were turned into museums. Hmm. Um, so you could go and pay your ticket and tour it like a museum. But if anybody saw you doing anything like praying near an icon, you had to leave. Um, and architecture, right? Like all of the beautiful old buildings in, uh, in Petersburg. Some of them were kept as museums. Many of them were knocked down. This happened in Moscow too. And so you couldn't, and and the name of St. Petersburg, the beautiful kind of name of St. Petersburg was changed to Leningrad, right? There's this intentional stripping away of beauty because 
all tyrants know that beauty ennobles the soul and, and promotes freedom. And so if you have a utter lack of beauty, there's all of these stories about, about these households that would have just like one beautiful thing, the scissors shaped like an egret with, with that, that were just so like lovely and beautiful and they would hide them away because they weren't allowed to have them. Right. And and so what happened for, for somebody like the Count who lived in an excess and a glut of beauty with, with no uh, vision necessarily in his own eye, we know he was kind of squandered his youth, right? And so he had all these things, but now that they're gone, now he is beginning to, to care about them and in a new way, in a way that understands that there's a connection between beauty and the soul. That is... That's not just a Russian contemplation, but a human contemplation. I'm reading a um, a book right now about Berlin hmm. in the 20th century. My grandmother grew up near Berlin prior to between the World Wars and then during, actually, um, during the second one. And so much of it is so similar to that. On the one hand, there was a systematic wiping away of things that were sacred and beautiful, but then there also was just like, it kind of naturally happened through the course of war and and economic collapse. And, you know, you lose not just a culture, like to lose a cultural identity is to inevitably lose an individual identity as well, right? Like when you get, when the cultural identity is wiped away, then the individual has nothing to grasp onto. Um, and so then the individual identity is shaped in, in a sort of like flailing about in a, you know, Latvians do. <laughs> There's, I have another question, though, that's kind of related to this. So on the one hand, we got the food, the wine, all those sorts of things. But this is a book that is full of illusions and evocations of Homer and Shakespeare and obviously Montaigne. And she mentions Montaigne in her question in the email that I just read. So what what role then does the do those illusions have? Is it does it just make it is it just make it into a more literary book? Does it make it, you know, does it just make it seem clever? Um, like, what do you think the 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 purpose and the and the end of, you know, talking so much about about Homer and and like he brings? It's not just the narrator; it's the characters themselves that occasionally are talking about it too. Curious what you all think about that. Um, is it the same as the wine? Is it the same the same sort of end? The same impact uh, as how he incorporates the wine, the things you're just talking about, or is there something, something else going on there? Ian, you want to go first or should we make Heidi go first? Sure. Yeah. Um, the first thing I notice about that is that there's a, there's a sharp distinction drawn between Montaigne and his essays and the novels that he picks up, uh, in the basement. There's something about story that is powerful mm -hmm. and that, uh, in an escapist sense, and I'll, I'll use the word the way Tolkien does, um, he, he talks about literature as an escape uh, in the sense of breaking out of a prison, right? So it's not a negative use of the word escapism. So yeah, it definitely takes him away as he reads A Christmas Carol on Christmas Eve. It takes him away from his troubles and leaves him with a profound sense of well-being and all of that. That's all, that's all good and a right use of, of literature. But I also think that it's more powerful than, than Montaigne for him because literature is about the journey of the soul. Um, and it uses all of its circumstances and all of its tropes to describe that journey. And, and so all of these references are an indication to us from our author that that's what he's writing about as well. 
he says, look, look, I'm doing the same thing. And it's not in, you know, it's not in the, the lair of a minotaur, but it is, this hotel is similar. And I'm writing about the journey of someone's soul as well. But for our main character, I think it encourages him to not give up the ghost of these questions. I mean, that's the other thing that literature is for is asking the biggest and the most far-reaching questions, the kinds of questions that are common to all human beings, regardless of where they live and in what time they live. And so I think uh, for the Count, reading these stories and having them in his in his mind and in his heart knits him together, even though he has been separated from the vast stream of humanity and and basically sidelined, benched. He's riding the pine over here in this hotel. Um, he's still a part of that humanity. And his journey is still like the journeys of those men that are alive in his time and like the journeys of all of the men written about since the beginning of time. So I think it has a, a peculiarly humanizing effect on our on our main character. Hmm. I agree with that. I also think that Tolls just really loves books and stories. And he, 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 he has like this very rich intellectual life and peppers his books with illusions. Um, partly I think just like gratuitous enjoyment as a writer, like these are my books and I want to, and, and I was influenced here and, and writing about this makes me think of Hamlet. So I'll put it in the book. Right. Um, and, and I think that's perfectly valid way to write. Um, I also, I also believe that the illusions deepen an understanding of the novel itself. For example, I don't know if either of you have read Montaigne, but, and he doesn't like Montaigne, but the thing about Montaigne is that all of his essays are this um, deep search of the self and self-identity, right? So he writes, he writes like personal anecdotes and just like casual statements about his life that lead to a deeper contemplation of an intellectual topic, which is frankly, exactly what a gentleman in Moscow is. Right. And so in, if you know that it adds a lot of pathos and gives you, I think, an, an inroad into understanding the counts, how, how he doesn't really know himself yet. He is Mm -hmm. the perfect gentleman. And yet, because he doesn't like Montaigne, we know he doesn't like exactly the thing that he's going through himself. Right. And, um, and so if you, you can absolutely get that by just reading the novel and not knowing anything about Montaigne and just knowing that Montaigne's this stuffy old essay writer and the count isn't that into him. Like that's perfectly fine. And you can still navigate the novel and understand everything about it. But if you are the kind of, if you, if we ourselves are the kind of people who, who care about reading and literary illusions and all that, it just gives us a fun little way into understanding the conflict that's being portrayed in the character. Oh, Hey Scott. The Scott White just walked behind us. The Scott, the Scott White. White. Yep. So, Ian, were you going to say something in response to that? No, I think that's great. I think that's totally great. So, like, do you find yourself when you run up against an allusion to, you talked about Montaigne there, but like we run up against an allusion to Homer or something like that, or where the Count is even talking about Homer, do, do you find, what's the one about Hamlet and Cicero? Is that when he's in the yeah, when he's watching, watching the, the room conversation with the Soviet conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he um, says he wouldn't have stayed even if it was Hamlet talking to himself or Cicero debating Catiline. That's so. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
when you get to those, do you feel like there's you're, you you feel a need to unlock the, the metaphor of that illusion? Like, do you feel like he's using putting puzzle pieces or presenting you with puzzle pieces? And if you can figure out what the connection is to that other work, you can get something deeper in what he's trying to say here. Hey, not yet. I don't feel that way yet. Um, I think there are two scenes that jump out to me. There's that one that you just mentioned, in which case I think it's um, pretty simple literary shorthand for this is the furniture of the Count's mind. These are the categories that he right. thinks in, and it helps you to understand yeah. his level of education and his interests. Um, and like then the other he one talks is, about Dogberry and Much Ado About Nothing. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. The other one is the one that I read earlier where um, where he's using all of these legendary heroic journeys to describe the Count's life in the Metropole. Yeah. Um, and that's and this, this is not as negative a comment as it sounds, but um, it was it was short of symbolism because he went ahead and spelled it out for us. Tiles did um, or tolls or however we're pronouncing his last name. In some ways it would have been more poetic if he had left it at sometimes the fates send a virtuous man who has fallen a, a guide um, rather than then making a list of all the times in literature that's happened. What that lets me know is that he doesn't want us missing it when there is something of of thematic association mm-hmm. in those references. And so to me, it's not putting puzzle pieces together because the author is going to stand next to me and say, and by the way, here's what I mean, and sort of lay it out for us. And I, I think you could, you could maybe accuse him of being a little pat in that, in that scene, um, falling short of true poetry, but I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. There's a lot of moments like that in this book that really, I have a lot of um, turmoil over Right, where like, I do find them kind of enjoyable and I see what he's doing and at the same time wish he would stop writing. a little more unsaid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, but that's kind of like a personality thing and the kind of books that I most love and like what I want it to be more subtle and I want it to have to leave me with a little bit of stasis, but he is writing, you know, like I said, you know, I, but on the, on the other hand, Tolstoy also was kind of had his and, and like Dickens, all these people that he's referencing here also did the same thing, right? They like kept going, you know, and there's plenty of subtlety in between the lines, but there's also a lot of lines and, (laughs) you know, and you know, there's not a, there's not a lot of stopping when you get to the point where you're ready to say something, you know, and that's a bit of a, you know, he may be trying to do that in, in kind of homage to some of those books that he loves. And it's clearly mm. he loves Dickens, right? Oh yeah. Um and Shakespeare and all that. I agree with you, David. I think he overwrites a bit, especially in the Lincoln Highway. It's I mean, it just takes you right out of the novels. I think sometimes that he he'll give you a literary illusion and I'm like, oh I love this reference to Odysseus. And then he'll like tell you about it. And yep. it's like a lot. Yeah. There's and I'm like there's maybe you. like a whole character yep. that doesn't need to be in that book. Well yeah. absolutely but I think he overwrites a bit about that. And there is absolutely no doubt that he's a little bit pretentious, which makes him the Bougie, perfect. Heidi. He, I think pretentious. I, I stand by it. Oh, you're going beyond. I, yes. Okay. And I think that, I, I think that a gentleman in Moscow is the right book for a pretentious writer to write somebody who just like, who's, who's like, I, I just want to write about Montaigne. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put it in my book. So writing about kind of a Russian <laughs> aristocrat who's is 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 the right 
that's the he's right following, place for He's it. following his literary bliss. Which I think is why the Lincoln Highway doesn't succeed quite so well as a gentleman in Moscow, because in the Lincoln Highway, he does the same thing about these like Midwestern boys that are coming out of juvie. Yeah. And yeah. So it's it's it doesn't work quite as well. But in this novel, I think it works really, really, really well. I think it absolutely works. But I do agree with you. I think he overwrites it a bit, um, gives us either too much or not enough like yep. and about these these illusions and references. And if you're the kind of person who who knows it and loves it and just kind of like catches on right away, then you're like, oh, that really made that scene a lot deeper and more funny or more poignant. But if you don't get it, you also could be really turned off. It's like, okay, so why do I have to know Shakespeare's entire canon just to read this novel that was written in 2016? Am I like a dummy that I don't get it? And and so anytime you feel that way in an, in a novel, I think that's a failure on the part of the author, not on you as a mm-hmm. reader. Um, mm. And and well, so I think that that is a bit, especially in a modern novel. And I know I over maybe overstated that, but I think it's true. It shouldn't be that you're picking up a popular novel and you have to have a classical education to get it. And I actually don't think you do in Gentleman in Moscow. I think you can let it wash over no. you. I don't think you yeah. need well, to Google po- it's everything. Close. It's clear yeah. that's true because it's very popular. Exactly. But I think that part of his his like reason for existing as a writer, like part of his whole goal as a writer is to help preserve and create an appreciation for these things that he, like I don't think he wants them to be forgotten, like Shakespeare. Agreed. And he wants to point people towards those things it's and remind an them of their value. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I, I think he's like yeah, an invitation is good. He's like trying to be, he's trying to like get you to sit down and drink, you know, what was the wine that he had the with the, he suggested with the Latvians do? The Georgian wine? I yeah, I don't know how. I've never had it. I'd love to. Now I want to make Latvian stew and buy that yeah, wine. Yeah, no kidding. Which is the yeah. whole point, right? The invitation. Yeah. The yeah, yeah, apricot I, specifically sounds so good. With the caramelized onions? Yes. Made me hungry. I love that scene. I think yeah. it's lovely. So yep. the first year that Bethany and I were married, we were, this is like pre-kids and all that kind of stuff. And we were at a local restaurant, which no longer exists, which was pretty good. And people would go there for like, you know, date night and stuff like that. So we're there and we're, it might've been around our, family. But anyway, we're talking about like, when we hit the jackpot, which we still haven't hit yet. Um, <laughs> 14 years later, where we do, where would we want to travel? Like, where would we want to go? Like what cities do we want to visit? And, you know, we're just trying to talk, doing that thing that people do when they're like, you know, 23 or whatever, and talking about their, their dreams for their lives. And we're talking about all the places we want to go. And Bethany's like, Oh, I'd love to go to the Middle East. And I'm like, I'd like to go to the UK. And then we're like, we should go to uh, Croatia because that's where Bethany's family's from. And it's on the Mediterranean and let's go to Tuscany and all these things. And then we, and then Paris comes up and we're like, uh, I could think I could like Paris seems great. I'd rather go to like Bordeaux or somewhere else in the south of France or something. And and like Paris seems great, but maybe I could take it or leave. Maybe it wouldn't be like super high on the list. And then this guy who's eating by himself at the like two another another table over, he no chimes way. in. He chimes in and he goes, I I just can't help but overhear your conversation, but I just want you to know my wife and I went to Paris a couple of times on all of our years of travels, and Paris is just delightful. 
<laughs> don't Paris is wonderful. Um, so it just reminds me, and I think he ended up buying us a glass of wine, as I recall, but it was like it just that scene in this book always reminds me of this guy sitting at the table, like just across, clearly listening to our conversation, like as we're getting our lives started, and then interjecting with a little bit of uh, a little bit of wisdom. Like maybe, maybe <laughs> don't maybe don't try that wine with your Latvian stew. Yeah, and he didn't just recommend a bottle of wine; he recommended a whole city full yeah. of wine. <laughs> don't don't give up on Paris just yet. <laughs> I love that. I do. I love that. It's good. Well. What let's let's do some final thoughts. Um, final questions. What are what are some questions or ideas that you're interested in seeing how this book explores them in the next section? How do you want to go first on that? Sure. Um, I think it's important here to pay attention to Nina, um, not just as a kind of like child guide for the count, but in herself, um, it's that what happened with her is when we first meet her, she wants to know how to be a princess. And right before she leaves, she is swept away by the Soviet, um, you know, the question that's, that the count utterly dismisses within that conversation that they overhear. Right. Um, he, he just sees kind of the ridiculousness of it. And, and, and she, however, is like, what a glorious endeavor to build a railroad and to, and, and, and so she is the young generation in the novel. And so think about her in herself as well as in relation to the count. And yeah, so that's, I found that just a very fascinating little um, tidbit about her. Ian? I like that a lot. That's connected to, and I think I might've mentioned it a little bit earlier, but his conversation with his, his best friend from, or his, his childhood buddy or his school friend or uh, was really interesting to me. His vision of history um, definitely smacks of the spirit of his age, but also the way the count responds was really interesting. Um, he is overjoyed to hear his friend talking like this, despite the fact that his friend is embodying the ideology that has imprisoned the count in this hotel. Um, he's delighted to hear, hear that the world has spun on its axis and put his friend under familiar constellations. And, uh, so I want to see how that develops. Um, because I, because I can hear, uh, our author, making a point about humanity and its resilience in the face of change. Um, and so not just with Nina, but also with his friend and with that whole philosophical conversation, I think that's going to tell us a lot about where the count is on his journey um, towards some sort of one hopes reconciliation to the state of the world and, and his place in it. So I'll be interested to see how that develops. Well, this has been a good conversation, y'all. It's a good, good book. This is a book that, is ripe for a lot of conversation. Agreed. There's, a lot, there's yeah. lots, lots to discuss. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about reading, rereading at this time is like, what is the books? What does the book decide that the good life is? Mm-hmm. Because we have, we talked about this a little bit, but you know, is there a disconnect between the trimmings and trappings, the the bougie things that make life fun? Is that the same thing as a good life? Like, what's the 
what's the role of that and then what's the what is a good life in particular what is the good life in particular in an age of dissonance and destruction um and then how do those things that make the aesthetic things that make a life beautiful how did how does that play into the good life in an age of destruction so those are some things that i've been thinking a lot about and we've talked about that a little bit the last couple episodes but i'll be continuing to think about that so for next week we're going to be discussing pages 109 to 167. That is book two for those of you who are listening on audiobook and don't have those page numbers. But uh, so it's all of book two. So 109 to 167. All right. Ian, thank you. Heidi, thank, thank you. you. Hope you're feeling better. We'll get back at it next week. Don't forget, you can head over to uh, Close Reads HQ to get our bonus episodes that we're doing on East of Eden with, with uh, Sean Johnson. And then um, Ian, what you got to plug? Oh, very little. Um, I, I mentioned it last time. We're doing our own literary trek through Victor Hugo, Les Mis, uh, and it's it is thus far a pretty spectacular novel. So if anybody's interested in taking on even more reading assignments, if you have nothing to do but read and listen to literary podcasts, we'd love to have you over at How to Eat an Elephant. And then like all the Center for Lists, just centerforlid.com. If people yeah. want to check out all, all your classes and... Yeah, your classes have started, but there's still some things that are available to people to check out. So yeah, book discussions for kiddos, and then also for for grownups in our membership club, the Pelican Society. So, so yeah, we all, we're always looking for friendly literary faces. Heidi, do you want to pitch anything before you go? Well, we do have some upcoming conferences. Uh, the Face of God Regional Conference with the Circe Institute is coming up uh, in Virginia, Sterling, Virginia, right at right outside of DC on October 7th and 8th. And I will be there with many of my esteemed, highly esteemed by me and others colleagues. Uh, next week is the Anselm Society Conference here in Colorado Springs, and I'm going to be there too. Uh, and so Heidi on the road, you can go, go meet her. That's right. Come meet me. I would be so glad to see any familiar and friendly faces, which everybody who's there will be a friendly face. But, um, if you are, you know, if you, if you follow close reads and are interested in meeting a close reader, I'll be there (laughs) reading closely, (laughs) reading closely. All right. Well, until next time, when we will discuss more of A Gentleman in Moscow. For Heidi White, for Ian Andrews, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Happy reading. Happy reading.